Good afternoon and thank you for joining. Today we are going to be beginning the crowning climax of this remarkable Hasidic manuscript. In case you're joining us for the first time, this is a series and to some degree you can only fully understand and appreciate the ideas that we'll be sharing today if you have seen the previous episodes or if you go back and watch them. Having said that, there are many, many new and fresh dynamic things we'll be learning about today. And this, once again, is going to entirely reframe your chauffeur listening experience. I'm a thousand percent certain of that. We're delving deeply into the Hasidic manuscripts of the Alta Rebbe and the Mittler Rebbe, the founders, founder and of the Chabad movement and his son, who are presenting us with insight and understanding of the Baal Shem Tov's mystical secrets, the meditations of the founder of the Hasidic movement unique to the shofar. So with no further ado, let me begin today's class by giving you a bit of an overview of how we got here. And I'm going to do something unusual. I really don't like to, to share uh, original ideas or insights because I don't know if they're right. I like to tell you what says in the holy books. I like to be able to explain things which people otherwise perhaps wouldn't understand as well. And that's my privilege. And that's my gift. Novelty? I don't know. I don't know if it's Torah. But because we're bridging the beginning of a rumination with the end of a rumination, and it's a very nuanced, extremely sophisticated and complex thesis to work through, 
I think that we need a little bit of, uh, I suppose, what you can call an artificial bridge or a, a segue into the crowning climax. So firstly, a brief recapitulation of the first six episodes of this series, of the sound effects, which is really the opening part of the mimer. As I mentioned in previous episodes, this mimer perhaps um, comprises ten major points. We've covered like one, one and a half. <laughs> Just the opening point, opening points. And now we're going to go to the climax. I called it crowning climax because the sounding of shofar is about crowning Hashem as our king. For, uh, let's call this a gross simplification. But for an understanding of what we have come to appreciate about the sounds of the shofar, let me synoptically say this. The shofar represents the deepest, most sublime form of soul communication or expression to God. And in serving as a very, very deep-seated, a very organic and natural soul communique, the essence of our souls forges a special connection or stirs, if you will, the essence of the divine psyche. And as we reach out to Hashem on the first day of a new year, through the agency of the mitzvah of shofar, that's God's idea, it's why it's meaningful. And yet, as we understand, the medium of the shofar allows for this innate soul expression that is so profound and so sincere, so unlettered and so simple that it's able to kind of get past the superficialities and enable us to link up with or connect with the essence of divinity. Every year on Rosh Hashanah, the anniversary of the creation of humankind, which is ultimately the purpose of the creation of the universe as we understand it from a Torah perspective, just having planet Earth without anybody gifted with the wisdom and intelligence and spiritual capacity to make a choice to allow God into their life or not is meaningless. And that's why, from a Torah lens, humanity is the crown of creation, or really the king of existence. All of the world was created to serve humanity, whose mission is to serve Hashem. And when human beings choose to serve Hashem, in turn, all of the things that they utilize to bolster and animate and sustain their existence also serves Hashem. That is to say, things that are done reflexively, 
naturally, without a, a choice, without a challenge, without any kind of inner upheaval, are actually valueless. Suppose somebody were to give you a gift without even knowing they gave you a gift. Certainly without caring about you. How meaningful would the gift be to you? From zero to a hundred? I'd probably place that as a zero. It's not meaningful. I'm, I, I'm happy I got the gift, but it's not meaningful. When people say it's the thought that counts, what they mean, and when somebody took the time to think about you and to shower you with care or affection, it touches you. Maybe the gift isn't what you needed, but we as human beings deeply value being thought of. We appreciate being appreciated. We love to be cherished. Every one of us has this innate need. Incidentally, that's why parenthood is so incredibly fulfilling, because there's a little human being for whom you are everything, who relies on you for its entire existence. And it's a profoundly life-affirming experience. So for our world to be meaningful to God, there has to be the possibility of us, if you will, gifting God with something. Showing that we, we, we are mindful of or, or thinking about God or cherish God or love God. You may, of course, ask me an obvious question. If God is omnipotent, why does He need our love? Why does He need our attention? Like if I was God, I wouldn't want my attention. I wouldn't be impressed by my affection. It's a good question. Unfortunately, we don't have a good answer. At least not one that is reasonable to the human mind. This requires what we would call in the vernacular a leap of faith. We live with faith that Hashem loves and cares about us and wants us and needs us or makes Himself as such. And this is a very, very complex question, a sophisticated question that cuts to the very foundation or core of religious ideal itself. Because religion, per se, is about relationship with God. That's not what today's class or episode is about. So let's not focus on whether mitzvahs are meaningful. Indulge me, even if even if you're disappointed and want a better answer for that question, today is not the day. The foundation, the premise we'll have to build from is that mitzvahs are meaningful. We are meaningful. And that mitzvahs are meaningful because of something called Bechir Chavshah's free choice. So every year on the anniversary of humanity's creation, and humanity is the creature gifted with conscience, consciousness, the ability to choose between right and wrong, saddled with an enormous desire 
to do the opposite of good, known as the evil inclination, which makes his or her choosing to do right very meaningful and special. So every year that's renewed. And every year, one of the points that's made in this mimer is that God, if you will, or as, as it were, withdraws. It's called an asira. He withdraws. And we have to bring forth the divine psyche. We have to re-engage God in creation. It's almost like our lease expires on an annual basis. And we do this by sounding the shofar. This is richly illustrated in large portions of the mimer which we really didn't touch. What we did talk about at length was the elemental sound of the shofar. And we did a profound analysis of communication, of speech, and how organic sound ultimately is divided, if, if, if if, if we may, or broken into various syllables or letters, which in turn allow for sophisticated communication. And because the shofar represents this organic cry from within, it's the sound of an aleph without the letter aleph. Ah, ooh. And as we talked about, it's, it's acted upon. It's very basic. It's not even really our voice. It's us simply making that sound using the world's oldest and original wind instrument. So in doing so, we express the profoundest essence, the deepest kind of communication, which stirs the divine psyche, brings Hashem pleasure, which is another idea that is developed in this mimer that we haven't really talked about, and Hashem reciprocally responds. That's kind of a synopsis of what we talked about, also laced with some of the things we didn't really talk about, didn't really explain. And this brings us to a chauffeur paradox. Now what I'm about to say is not articulated in the Mimer. The Alter Rebbe doesn't spell out this question. This is what you'll call an original perspective. And I'm telling you it's original, not to tell you that I'm smart or anything, but for you to know that if you don't like it, you can discard it. It may not be accurate. I did discuss this with a number of people who I highly respect, who are older and much smarter than me. And they said, no, it doesn't say it in the Mimer, but it's a, a compelling thought. And I want to share this because it, it helps us maybe to, to bridge where we started from to where we are going to conclude now. There's a lot of, lot of ground that we haven't traveled. The opening thesis about the simple or essential cry that comes from within really explains the tekiah. It explains that simple sound. Ah! That simple cry. That simple cry is unbroken. It's not choreographed. It's not coded. It doesn't have any kind of specific message attached to it other than Tata, Father. Just a cry from within. But you all know there's another part of the chauffeur. 
The shofar isn't only comprised of tekiah. The shofar has what you could call in the modern vernacular like a Morse code signal. The shofar's got ringtones. In addition to tekiah, the shofar has a shvarim, which are three broken sounds, and then something called a teruah, which are a minimum of nine rapid bursts. So those rapid bursts, along with the slower broken sound, are part of the mitzvah. Which perhaps seems, at least on the surface, if not to contradict, but to compound what we talked about in the outset of this mimer. We developed this idea called memutza, called this, this middle state of being where we have a call, we have an expression, but the expression is artless, is unlettered, unbroken. But along with that comes the very broken sounding cries or sounds of the shofar. So, so it's not so simple. It's not so artless. In fact, it has a code attached to it. It has a tune, if not a tune, at least it's punctuated by something. It's the shivaram and the trua are not simple sounds. In fact, this translates into halacha. The only thing you need to know about a, a tekiah, at least according to most opinions, and this is the halacha, is that it's a long, unbroken blast. And there's a minimum amount of length, how long it has to be. But it's basically, it's just a simple cry. A, f- a fair-sized, a fair simple cry. But when it comes to shvarim and trua, there are details of what a shvarim has to sound like. Not only how long it has to be, but what it has to sound like. And what a terua has to sound like. And that seems to be an imposition of sophistication of something that was supposed to be organic, artless, and simple. And that makes kind of for a show for paradox. Now, <laughs> this question, if you will, or this, uh, this paradox that I'm presenting isn't talked about in the mimer. To be fair, it's, it's, it's like my own take on it, my own. So maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong, and maybe, but, but I, I, it seems that it helps us go from the first message of the mimer to the concluding message of the mimer, which is the breaking sound, augmenting the simple sound. So why is that? And this is going to be the focus sound of freedom, we will discover today how in order to release Hashem's bracha, in order to release ourselves from our own inability to function or our our own possible failure, what we require is some engineering. And the broken sounds are an intrinsic part of the chauffeur's cry despite the fact that it's not entirely elemental or simple anymore and that it has a certain code or specific rhythm that's attached to it. So before we actually delve into the mimer, I want to give you a little bit of background. There's a Gemara 
It's found in Masechet Rosh Hashanah. It's a Mishnah on page 33, side B. And the Mishnah talks about a sheer teruah, about the sound that a teruah, a broken sound, is supposed to make. What is the teruah supposed to sound like? And the Mishnah indicated that it was kisholish yavavis, like these groans, three of them. Ha ha, ha ha, ha ha. So the Gemara asks, one second, that doesn't seem to line up with teachings of the same genre. Mishnah is the formal body of oral law as was redacted by Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, Rabbi Judah the Prince. However, along with Mishnah comes an enormous amount of Beraisa. Beraisa is what you could call a codicil to the Mishnah, and it's considered to be accurate representation of the oral law. And if we have a Mishnah, and we have a Beraisa, and they're contradicting each other, let's just say it's a problem. We need reconciliation. So the Gemara comes along and says, Vahatanya, Shir Trua. We learned that the Shir Trua is a, a different sound, longer. So the Gemara comes along and says, Yeah, you're right. There is a, an inherent contradiction. Amr Abaya, Pligi. Earlier we reconciled a seeming dispute, but here there is definitely two opinions. Whether we have a shvarim sounding like do-to, 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 or the broken sound is supposed to sound like a trua. The Gemara says we have two opinions. We definitely have two opinions. And the Gemara has a whole discussion about origins, about verses in the Torah that would seem illustrative, that would enable us to come to clarity as to what exactly we refer to. And the Gemara in the end concludes that Mar Savar, one of the masters, and this refers to the opinion as it's articulated in the Braise, Genuchi Gonach, that there are groans, the broken sound is a groan, that's what the broken sound sounds like. Umar Savar, and the opinion of the Mishnah is Yululi, Yulul, Yululi, Yulel is many broken sounds. That's the two opinions. The Gemara later on, on Ahmed Beis, pardon me, going from Lama Gimel Ahmed Beis to Lama Dalit Ahmed Aleph, the Gemara tells us that at a certain point we had a a fix that was applied to the performance of this mitzvah. So it's actually a subject, a very interesting historical subject for a different day. But let me just tell you that modern times in which the city of Tel Aviv is the more urbane city in Israel. That's, that's the financial capital, if you will, of, of the country, the engine that drives the economy is not Jerusalem. Jerusalem is where the seat of government is, and Jerusalem captures the imagination of the Jewish people, but it's, it's not the largest town in Israel or city in Israel, and it's certainly not 
the economic engine of, of, of the country. That's Tel Aviv. But that's not new. In fact, one could argue that there have always been examples like that. In pre-Mishnah times, or the time of the Mishnah, there was a city that was built by a non-Jewish monarch of the Jewish country named Judea. He was, uh, maybe he identified Jewish, but he really wasn't halachically Jewish. His name was Herod, or Hurdus. And Hurdus, wanting to impress his Roman masters, built a Roman city. He also rebuilt the base of Migdash, but, you know, Jerusalem was a spiritual center. It was the place of worshiping Hashem. It wasn't the, the cultural Mecca. It wasn't the center of finance and the arts. That was in a city which he called Caesarea, in honor of the Caesars. So to honor his Roman masters, he built this enormous city, which, by the way, eventually fell into such disrepair that nobody even knew where it was. And there was an Israeli airman, I believe in the 50s, who flying over the site of where Caesarea was noticed what seemed to be the outline of a, an enormous stadium. And so he did his research, and with aerial pictures they pieced it together, and they found the lost city of Caesarea along with this enormous harbor, an incredible harbor. And it collapsed entirely, and nothing was left of it. But in the days of the Mishnah, it was a very important city. Rabbi Akiva, the great teacher of Torah, lived in Caesarea. Do you know why? It's where the people were. He wanted to engage the people. He wanted to teach Torah to the people. He wanted to uplift the nation. So the Gemara tells us, Iskin Rabbi Avohu Bekesari, Rabbi Avohu got this injunction going where the majority of the people were in Kesaria. What did he institute? He instituted a tekiah, that's the long unbroken sound, and then Shalosha Shavarim, the three shorter sounds as we have them, Tuutu, Tuutu, Tuutu. And then a trua, tu, 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 tu. and then at the end, a tkiya again. So the Gemara says, hey, what's going on here? Which one is it? What do you mean he, he was iskin? He, put, he, he created like a new shofar blowing over here. If it's the do, 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 do. Okay, so then you have that approach. And if it's the sounding of, of a shvarim. So then you have a shvarim. Either you do trua, pardon me, tkia, then trua, then tkia, or you do tkia, shvarim, and tkia. By the way, we do that. But what, what was he trying to accomplish? So the Gemara says, Misafkele, Rabbi Avo wasn't sure. Wasn't sure. What was the sound of the right broken sound? So there's like two broken sounds. There's a, there's a shorter broken sound and a longer broken sound. He wasn't sure which is the broken sound. It's clear from the verses in the Torah that there needs to be a broken sound. He didn't know which one it was. So the Gemara begins to analyze this again. So what does that mean he's, he's in doubt? If he's in doubt, what he created was not going to be good according to either opinion. Because 
Because if you need to have a tekiah, a long blast, and then a shvarim, and that's the proper thing, then you need to frame it immediately with another long blast. A long blast, tekiah, shvarim, and then tekiah. The teruah would become an interruption. And vice versa, with the teruah, having a shvarim before the teruah, having the three shorter blasts before the quick sounds in succession, is again going to create what's called a hefsik. It's going to create what's called an inappropriate sound. The wrong thing at the wrong time creates a barrier. It is going to disengage the broken sound from the long sound. The shofar order is an unbroken sound, a broken sound, and an unbroken sound. So the broken sound is framed by two unbroken sounds. But if you have a question of which broken sound it is, and then you insert one and then the other, and you do so side by side, you invalidate the non-broken sound in either, in either direction. Either there's going to be an interruption between the non-broken sound and the last kia, or you're going to have an interruption between the unbroken sound and the first kia. So what did Rabbi Avo accomplish? So the Gemara says, this is because Rabbi Avo wasn't sure if it's supposed to sound like both together. That was the novelty. There was a school of thought that it was tuhutu, tuhutu, tuhutu. A school of thought that it was tu tu tu, and then it was a school of thought that it was tuhutu, 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 tuhutu. So Rabbi Avo said, that way we have them all. The Gemara comes along and says, why don't we have? Short blasts followed by three blasts. The Gemara says that the logical thing is that in weeping, first the person sobs, and then he begins to, to first he weeps, and then he sobs. Okay. This is it's not what the class is about, but I wanted to give you the background. So there's a whole Gemara, a whole discussion about this, of, about, about this broken sound. It's clear that the broken sound is a part of the shofar. The question is, which of the broken sounds? The Zohar has a totally different take on this. The Zohar and Parshas Pinchas. And the Zohar says something incredible. The Zohar says, Valdo loy yodi hani bavloi. The Babylonians, referring to Agamara, they missed the point. They didn't understand this. They didn't understand what, he, what the Zohar calls Raza diyavava viyalulta. They didn't understand the secret of the short, the three short sounds, and then the many different, the many broken sounds. Yodi and the Babylonian sages didn't appreciate the travayu itzrichi, that they're actually both necessary. And the Zohar says, Yelulta di'iu dinatakifa. The many little sounds... That represents harsh judgment. And then the Tlos Tevidin, the three breaks, the three broken sounds, the Ihudina Rafia, that represents a soft breaking. So you chop it up in many pieces or you break it in a few pieces. Chopping it in many pieces is an intense breaking action. And here it's less intense, it's just, you know, a slight, a softer, so to speak, breaking the barrier. Or breaking the sound. The Nitzutzi Zohar, which is a very important commentary in the Zohar, actually suggests he cross references this with the statement in the Zohar Chadash about the different pairs of tefillin. The tefillin have four different parchments. In the head compartment, they're placed 
on four separate parchments in the hand compartment. They're written on one long parchment, but there's a question as to the order, which Torah portion comes first, second, third, and fourth. So because there are questions about this, the order have, has come to become known in modern times as Rashi's and Rabbeinu Tam's. The opinion of Rashi, which is also the opinion of Rambam, and most of the other great Rishonim, and then the opinion of Rabbeinu Tam, the Tosafists. But it precedes the medieval times by many, many, many centuries. In fact, it turns out that from the beginning of time, there were these different schools of thought of how the tefillin should be worn or how the tefillin should be arranged. So in today's day and age, there are those who will put on two pairs of tefillin with the portions arranged in different ways so as to fulfill a doubt, just in case. But the Zohar Chadr says that today's Zugi tefillin, that the, it was said that the two pairs of tefillin was begindalei bekiyan, because we didn't know. And we have uh, today's Zugi tefillin, therefore two pairs of tefillin, he says, misveka, Leyadinan, so he says, out of doubt. The Zohar Chadash says, that's a mistake. Leyadinan Baraza. They didn't know the secret. The secret is, Both are needed. In other words, they represent two different dimensions of tefillin energy. And both are needed. In a perfect reality, you need to have the first pair of tefillin, followed by the second Torah tefillin. That represents the totality, the fullness of the mitzvah. So the interesting thing is that the Zohar is telling us that not only that you need to have a broken sound, but that both broken sounds are necessary. And they represent different codes. One is called a harsh breaking, and one is a soft breaking. And they, they make up the different tones of the shofar, which only serves to kind of intensify the question that I presented you with. If the shofar is about an organic or simplistic cry, why the different sounds? Why break it up in that fashion? So with this background, we can now take a look and see how the crowning climax of the Mimer unfolds. In the, previous, in the previous point of, this, of, this, of the Mimer, we talk about the idea of chesed and gvura, which represent two distinct dimensions within the proverbial divine persona. God is a benefactor. He gives, he animates, providing life and sustenance. God also restrains, refrains, withholds, and yes, sometimes judges and even punishes. That comes not from benefaction or giving, called kindness or chesed, that comes from gvura, which is perhaps best translated as discipline. Restraint, severe judgment, the idea of withholding, keeping back. The truth is that in just about any situation, endless kindness 
isn't a good thing. Say, the person motivated by kindness, endlessly, finds fulfillment only in giving. Everyone. All the time. So if a person needs some kitchen implements to be able to prepare a meal for the family and they ask for a knife, he's happy to provide a knife because that's what they asked for. That's a good thing. But when a small child sees his parents in the kitchen and wants to replicate their behavior and asks for a knife, he says, I give. So he gives a knife to the child. It's a very bad thing. The child can now harm himself. Making matters worse, a terrorist shows up. He's looking for a knife so that he can harm, maim, or God forbid even kill an innocent person. Mr. Congeniality doesn't know how to say no. So he gives because, well, I, w I was asked. I don't want to be the bad guy. I don't want to be the one who says no. So you understand that giving is not always a good thing. Sometimes you need to learn how to say no. No terrorist. God forbid, I would never give you anything you could use as a weapon to harm others and to further your, further your murderous agendas. You're a hard individual. You're a twisted, sickening, hateful person. I would never give you something that you could use to harm somebody with. The child, sweet, innocent, too foolish and immature to realize how dangerous a sharp knife is. No, can't give you a knife. The person who needs the knife, they can get the knife. The truth is that judgment can get very severe. For example, a person might ask for a knife and judgment says, well, why should I give it to you? <laughs> Did you do anything to earn it? Well, no, but I, I got a pair of dinner for the kids. Well, uh, that's not my problem. You don't just get anything for free. You'll have to pay for it. When you give what's expected, then you can come and ask. There are no free handouts, says the perspective of judgment. That's not good either. Now people can't eat because they're being judged too harshly. So both are problematic. And the Gemara, uh, sorry, the Mimer talks about this idea of chesed, this idea of gvura, divine judgment, divine kindness and judgment conversely. And the Mimer seems to indicate that the sounding of the shofar is related or is the response to severe restraint. And that the only way to kind of deal with the restraint of Hashem's pulling back is for us to express an ardent sense of yearning, a loneliness, a desire to be close to God, something which is rooted in discipline rather than the freewheeling style of chesed. I'm grossly oversimplifying, but I'm leading you to the point that we will deal with today. 
precisely because there is a gevura, a very intense, dare I use the word severe, element of this interplay between God and us, the Jewish people, on Rosh Hashanah. Precisely because the shofar is represented by the patriarch Yitzchak, it's interesting that in many high holiday prayer books, the same prayers are chanted with different cantillation, with a slightly different emphasis, beginning in a different place and emphasizing different words, and a different message comes across. Beginning with the fact that every Shabbat we begin with Shochen Ad Marom V'Kadosh. That's where the Shacharit prayer really kind of takes off. Shochen Ad means Hashem's Shechina. That's a reflection of Shabbat. Shabbat is Hashem's presence that's with us. And Rosh Hashanah, we begin with the words Hamelech. Now, the same words are said a whole year. They're chanted every Shabbat and every Yom Tov. True. But the emphasis now is on God as King. As the Hasidic teaching t- indicates, Hashem has removed His presence. And He's waiting for us to, to plead, to reach out, even to stimulate and bring God a sense of delight and pleasure in His creation so that Hashem agrees to become our King once again and grants us a new lease on life. And this comes in the form of a whole new energy, a new program that's written or authored annually by God Himself for the new year. And every year it's unique, different, and in some ways better. We don't see it, we don't feel it, we don't know it, but that's really how it is. And it's achieved through the sounding of the shofar. And there is a gvura element, a very strong gvura element. So in some machzorim, we spell out an acrostic, the names Yitzchak and Rivka. And there's a tremendous focus on the ram that was used for Yitzchak and, or instead of Yitzchak at the Akedah, which is the Torah reading on the second day of Rosh Hashanah. Maimonides is of the opinion that only a ram's horn may be used on Rosh Hashanah, which is not the halacha, but still it is the preferred method. So there's a special connection between the shofar and between a father Isaac, and that forms a very important part of what we're about to learn. The hine, going to the body of the mimer itself, in the new print on page 722, this leads us, this emphasis on Gvura, on Yitzchak, leads us into the root of shofar sounding. What's the root? That has, I demonstrated to you, that it represents the size and then the sobbing. So the sighs and the sobbing, or the broken sound, which are called in shofar tone, shivarim and teruah, that the reason we have broken sounds, that the reason, the cause for broken sound in the milieu of simple sound, unbroken sound, so like it seems like a paradox, 
seems to fly in the face of everything we learned, that the shofar is artless, simple, not developed, doesn't have a code attached to it. And yet, there is a profound part of shofar, a very critical, foundational part of shofar that has an eye to the way it's broken up, to the code. That it represents this idea of l'shaber, to break, v'limtok, and to sweeten b'chinas ha'gvuris dezor, the emotional dimension in the divine psyche of extreme discipline or judgment. Shehu b'chinas yitzchak, that level of divine judgment that represents our father Isaac. As the Alter Rebbe puts it in his magnum, Mimer Magnum Opus of Torah Or, in Parshas Yisrael, this is on Daf Lamed Gimel, Ayin Gimel, Amr Aleph, the first column of page 73, where the Alter Rebbe goes through the different patriarchs, and he says, when it comes to Avraham, it says, Avraham, O Havi, Avraham, my lover. But when it comes to Yitzchak, it says, Pachad Yitzchak. So, the lover of Avraham and the dread of Yitzchak, that represents the idea of Chesed and Gvura. The shofar is very, very much Yitzchak oriented. It's very much Gvura. Of course, Rosh Hashanah is the day of judgment. Will God renew his lease on life or not? Who will live? Who will die? Who will be raised? Who will be demoted? Who will prosper or be impoverished? This is all judgment. Rosh Hashanah is called Yom HaZikaron, the day of remembrance. God remembers us all and reviews our deeds. We pass before God in single file, so to speak. It's also known as Yom HaDin, the day of judgment. Rosh Hashanah is a Yom Tov, a holiday, and yet hollow is not recited. The rabbis tell us, and this is quoted in the Shulchan Aruch, because it's a day of judgment. The very idea that we celebrate Rosh Hashanah is actually quite novel. As the tour explains in great detail, a person might say, sing, rejoice, have a lavish meal with the family? You've got to be kidding. It's a day of judgment. When people have a day in court where the rest of their life is about to be decided, they're not filled with joy. They're not jovially wishing everybody good yomtif. They're pretty nervous. They're anxious. And yet, our prophets are very clear. In the book of Nehemiah, it says that we must rejoice on yomtif. And Rosh Hashanah is included. Because our joy in God that's the source of our strength. And the way the Balaturim explains, the Torah says, this is because, this is because we have betochen. We have trust in Hashem. That's why we're joyous. Because we have trust in Hashem. As the story goes, this fellow has a lawyer who's representing him. The lawyer comes late. He doesn't make the best arguments. 
his client is crestfallen, but he's very calm. In the end, he wins the case and he says to his lawyer, how are you so calm? He says, I didn't tell you. The judge is my Zaidi, he's my grandfather. We know that Hashem loves us. We know that Hashem cares for us. And we believe strongly that Hashem wants what's good for us. And therefore, we don't melt down in fear, but instead we actually rejoice on Rosh Hashanah. But at the same time, the rejoicing is tempered. It is a Yom Hadin. So we don't recite or chant a halal prayer, which is a guest at the services of every other Yom Tov. Why? Serious day. Awesome day. We don't know Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur as Yomim Tovim. We call them Yomim Noraim. The awesome days. So there's an element of Gevura here. And because there's an element of severity and of judgment, we, what we require is the engineering of judgment. And so the words the Alter Rebbe uses is we need to break and sweeten. Bechinas Hagvuras, which is the level of Yitzchak, which is a level of Bechina, a dimension of Pachad, fear, and Yira, dread or awe. So what's wrong if we're in an awesome state? What's wrong if we're overwhelmed? The nature of fear is that you kind of shrivel. We retreat from something we're afraid of. We want to avoid something that we're uncomfortable with. We love to extricate ourselves from a circumstance, whereas love and kindness beckons and draws us in, whereas a person who's in that state where they feel loved and accepted is expansive and relaxes their guard. A person who's afraid or intimidated shrivels, shrinks back from the situation. So this is what's called in the language of mysticism, bechines histalkus, we want to kind of take leave. We want to check out. Sticking around there isn't, it's too scary, too dangerous. Stakes are too high. Not to get engaged in the material world. On the contrary, that a person recoils. That's Gvura for you. That Gvura has to be engineered because Gvura left to its own devices is going to take us in the wrong direction. What does breaking have to do with sweetening? So, there's a story that's told that a, a fellow who was very gifted, very articulate, he used to travel through towns in White Russia, and he would repeat the Hasidic teachings of his Rebbe. He was a Hasid of the Mittler Rebbe. And he came to the Mittler Rebbe once, and he said that he thinks maybe he should retire from this vocation. Maybe he shouldn't be the one to travel around and share the teachings of Hasidus. Why, said the Mittler Rebbe, what's wrong? You, you seem to be very successful. And the man said, in full honesty, that it gives me a sense of self-pride. I'm filled almost with an arrogance at my success. I'm so good at what I do. I feel so good about the things I'm engaged in, that I actually feel bad about it. A person should be humble, and this is not making me more humble. On the contrary, it's making me conceited. 
So the chassid wanted out. So the middle Rebbe's response was, cryptic, he said, May you be an onion, but keep teaching Torah. What does that mean? May you be an onion. So our Rebbe explained it like this. Onions aren't eaten like apples. Most normal people don't relish chewing on raw onion. And yet, you can't cook without onions. Well, how does that work? The answer is very simple. You don't eat a whole onion unless you boil it first. The onion has to be diced. The bitterness of the onion becomes a tremendous source of flavor when it's chopped up. So the vast majority of recipes or culinary delights involve the dicing of an onion. So the Rebbe said, what the Mitla Rebbe was telling this fellow, atzibul is often the very means. You feel a sense of conceit, so you have to break that up. You can break up conceit and arrogance, which is a bad thing, but if taken in small portions and broken into small pieces, it becomes simply having a healthy self-esteem. Not being afraid of one's shadow and not feeling inadequate. To feel capable and adequate at doing something is extremely important, otherwise you can never be successful. So Hatzibel is often developed. You have to look at that arrogance as onion-like. By breaking it up, it serves to flavor the dish. Self-esteem and arrogance, ultimately, it seems, boil down to volume. If you pile on a whole enormous amount of self, it turns into arrogance. If you break it up, it becomes a healthy attitude. So we need to break up this gvura so that bitterness can actually become something that flavors. Proverbially, this is called sweetening the judgment. In other words, the Balshemtiv secret about the broken sounds of the shofar is that because the shofar represents Yitzchak, or judgment, and because Rosh Hashanah is a day of judgment, that what we need to do is sweeten the judgment. So the shofar sound at its organic core is a cry of yearning. It's, it's the kind of expression that could lead a person to want to abandon this world altogether. This world is a very frustrating place for somebody who seeks spiritual fulfillment and salvation. For a person who wants to live a, a higher-minded kind of life. Are you kidding? This world bogs you down. You get m- caught up in the muck and mire of, of politics and, 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 and jealousies, animosities, acrimonies, what they call in Yiddish faribles, grudges. There's so many things that can take a person's focus and shift them away from what's good and right. 
You're supposed to love everybody. Are you kidding? How do you love everybody? There are so many toxic people. There are so many inappropriate people. Sometimes we don't even realize how toxic and inappropriate we ourselves are. Life is fraught. So that simple cry is, Oy vey, I can't do this anymore. This is ridiculous. Who needs this anyway? It's a giant E.T. phone home. Tata, Father in Heaven, just take me out of the situation. That's not, that's not what it's about, though. Escapism is not the recipe for spiritual success. In many faith systems, a mendicant order is the most praiseworthy kind of life a person could live. The more a person forswears involvement and engagement with ordinary things, the more he lives a life of suffering and deprivation. A life filled with utter simplicity and rejection of all the things that might be pleasurable. That that brings a person to a perfected character, to a heightened awareness of God. That makes them holy. Comes along with the, the, idea, the notion that really holy people shouldn't be married. And yet, Judaism advocates precisely the opposite path. Not the path of disengagement, but the path of engagement. The Baal Shem Tov taught that instead of breaking the physical body, one had to harness and sublimate the physical body. The Baal Shem Tov famously taught the mystical meaning of the mitzvah of helping your neighbor's faltering donkey. The donkey is weighed down by his load and he's collapsing. And you don't want to be bothered. The Torah says, no, no, when you see the donkey of the person you can't stand and despise, you need to help him. The donkey can't be allowed to suffer. This person can't be allowed to endanger themselves. And the Baal Shem Tov taught us that on a deeper level, the word chamor, donkey, can also be reimagined as chomer. This is an idea from the Maharal of Prague as crass materialism. So when a person looks at the crass, mundane, ordinary material world, he sees Sainacha. This doesn't refer to what's out there, but also in here, my own Yetzirah, my own bodily needs, my body's endless demands. They seem to hate the burden, the burden of Torah study and, and mitzvah observance. The burden of being kind and compassionate and forbearing and putting up with people's lunacy and mishigas and responding with a smile. Are you kidding? The body's like, leave me alone. I'm out of here. And some people thought that the way to deal with these problems is to crush the body, starve the body, force the body not to have enough sleep, to deprive him of food, and deprived and broken, the body would allow the spirit to express itself. And the Boshenta said, no, that's all wrong. That disengagement with the material is exactly the opposite direction of where Hashem wants you to be. 
The Baal Shem Tov taught us that this world is a beautiful place. It just looks ugly. It's really beautiful. This world is filled with incredible opportunities that you can't find in the heavens. Paradise has got nothing on this world because mitzvahs can only be performed here. But you have to engage. You have to, you have to connect with the material things in a holy sense, in a mission-driven fashion, with a mind to purpose, with a focus on purpose. And in doing so, you can sublimate, you can elevate, you can transform the mundane and the ordinary. So gvura, this kind of divine severity, can also become expressed in bechinesistalkos, in a yearning and a rejection of the material world. That's a problem. So you have to sweeten that desire. By, by, by the way, that desire is a good thing. It's a healthy thing. We should feel a sense of frustration with everyday life. We should feel a sense of yearning. We should wish to slake our spiritual thirst and craving and desire. We should wish to cast off the yoke of excessive bodily engagement and material sensual pursuit. But that's by sweetening, if you will, mitigating the intensity of the judgment, chopping the metaphoric onion. And that's called Hamtakas Agvurus. Incidentally, this Baal Shem Tevonian idea that highlights the sounds of the shofar as Hamtakat Agvurta, sweetening of judgment, has become part of the fabric of Rosh Hashanah itself, where we not only dip the apple in the honey, the apple is sweet and the honey makes it sweeter. Not only do we dip our challah in honey instead of salt, but we take things which are, by their very nature, bitter, and we sweeten them. One of the famous Rosh Hashanah dishes is made of carrots. Now, there's also an etymological connection because the word carrot in Yiddish is merin. And just like in Talmudic times, they would eat a particular vegetable called rubia because it means multiplication. So the rubia, which is about multiplying, which is a, a gourd, in Yiddish, which Jews spoke for well over a thousand years in Eastern Europe, the carrots were merin. Tsumerin also means to increase, like rubia. So we weren't eating rubia and silka, but we were eating the etymology changed. And there's a certain power, a certain force in words. The problem is carrots are not very sweet, and Rosh Hashanah was supposed to sweeten things. So the poster child of sweetening that which is not naturally sweet became the sweet carrot dish, known in Yiddish as tzimis. Tzimis is a carrot that's chopped up or sometimes mashed. And then when the carrot is chopped up or mashed, it's either mixed with raisins and sugar and honey. So it's a sweet little dish. Or sometimes it's cooked for a very long amount of time with bones of the meat. And you have a hot simis. 
and it becomes very tasty, but it's no longer the natural taste, <laughs> if you will, of the carrot. And that represents the sweetening, a key element in what we're trying to achieve in Rosh Hashanah. Restraint is a very important thing. Discipline is an absolute necessity. Yet discipline, left to its own devices, can become overwhelmingly taxing to the point of really draconian, too harsh. So we don't want too much discipline and judgment. Instead, we want to re-engineer that bitterness, like chopping up the onion, so that it becomes what we call in Yiddish Geschmack, tasty, delicious. The Baal said, those are the broken sounds of the shofar. It's precisely because the shofar represents so powerful a call from within that in some way embodies a rejection of material engagement that the tekiah has to be followed by the broken sound. In the Mimer, the Alter Rebbe now continues and he says, the Iker Haham Toko, the Gvuras Yitzchok, the primary sweetening of the severity of Yitzchok, who al Yedei Yainkev Asher Podas Avram, that happens through, proverbially speaking, Jacob, who redeems Abraham. I'll explain this in a moment, but first, I want to share something very interesting. Rosh Hashanah. 1951, you could argue it's uh, the first Rosh Hashanah where the Rebbe is formally acting as our Rebbe. Very special Fabrengen on the second day of Rosh Hashanah. And in that, at that Fabrengen, the Rebbe spoke about this mimer at some length. I have to tell you that in my review of the Rosh Hashanah talks and discourses, be they on Rosh Hashanah itself or on Shabbat Shuvah, it seems to me that almost annually the Rebbe would mention this mimer that we're studying. As we learned about in the beginning of this whole series, the Rebbe relates that it was the instructions of the previous Rebbe that the Baltukea, the person who blows the shofar, sounds the shofar, must study this mimer. And we also kind of became privy to the Rebbe's idea that it wasn't only for the one sounding the shofar, but actually anybody wanting to fulfill the mitzvah of shofar in its fullest sense would have to learn about the kavanah. So it seems pretty clear that the Rebbe used to review this mimer on an annual basis, and just about every year he spoke about it. This is a, certainly a mimer that the Rebbe spoke a lot about. Unfortunately, very few people take the time to really understand this mimer. It's a really, really difficult mimer, very challenging mimer to understand. At any rate, so the Rebbe talks about this mimer, and he says that gvura, this intense discipline, is not a good thing. Why? 
Because, and these are the words of the Mittler Rebbe, it's a teaching of the Alter Rebbe, the founder of the Chabad movement, written by his son, the Mittler Rebbe. The Mittler Rebbe says, it's hystalkos, hystalkos it represents a rejection of the ordinary material reality. It, rejects, it, it represents an entire rejection of pedestrian existence and a, a retreating into a, a higher, loftier headspace that wants nothing to do with everyday life. And that's not a good thing. It's not the kavona. It's not the intention. So therefore, we have to kind of have an opposite direction, an opposite movement at the same time. As, at the same time, at once, as we're experiencing this yearning, and this cry out, Oh, ye Hashem, please, take me out of here. I don't want to be bogged down. I don't want to keep slipping and tripping. It's so daunting. Life is so fraught. At the same time as you're having those feelings, those powerful pangs of yearning, at the same time, there also has to be the force of kindness, the force of engagement. And that sweetens that yearning. And that happens through the level of Yaakov, who sweetens Yitzchak, with the kindness of Avram. And I promised you we're going to come back to this. But I just want to share this, this point. The Rebbe says, this is the idea of the sobbing, the, 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 the sighing and sobbing, the broken sounds of the shofar. It represents shattering, breaking the intensity of the gvura, the discipline of Yitzchak. And it happens through Yaakov. Neb says something very interesting. He said we can even see this, that when a person is screaming, crying in pain, at a certain point, a person begins to kind of sigh. And a person begins to, to sob quietly. Neb said we see Begashmias, when a person's in a lot of pain, when he reaches the point of Genuach Umiyalil, when he's sighing and sobbing, that it kind of makes it a little easier. It diminishes the pain. The intensity of the pain, which is overwhelming, which, which leads a person to scream out in pain, and eventually a person almost calms himself with that quiet sobbing, with that, with the, with the, with the, as they call in Yiddish, krechzing. The Rebbe said you can see even a material example of how it serves to almost to inhibit, to lessen the intensity of the gvura, of the rejection, of the impossibility of being able to countenance the circumstances. It almost reverses the direction when a person goes through that process of grieving, that process of profound expression. So it sweetens the cry, or makes the person feel better. Okay, so that's a, a literal example of this, this uh, concept that we're talking about. What is the meaning of Yaakov HaShapodas Avram? Okay, so let's, um, let's take a look at the end of the 32nd chapter of Tanya, where the Alter Rebbe talks about a bad person, a wicked person, 
And he says it's a mitzvah to hate the wickedness and the evil in the person. But at the same time, the Alter Rebbe says, we should also endeavor to also pity the person. Because pitying the person has a way of inhibiting the rejection or the feeling of disgust or hate that we might feel towards this person. So we find the person repulsive. We find his behavior disgusting. So this is a disgusting individual. You're repulsed by him. You reject him. Can't stand him. Disdain to the nth degree. How can you change that? How can you stop despising this person so much? The answer is Rahmanus. If you can view that person as a pitiful individual, instead of despising them, you pity them. You pity a person who would stoop so low. You pity a person who would behave so inappropriately. You see, that's pathetic. But pity has a way of minimizing hatred. Hatred is not a good thing. So it kind of redeems the situation. You have to be incensed at bad behavior. You have to, you have to reject terrible behavior. See, a person who's violent, hurtful, evil. You have to hate evil. How could you be okay with that? It's not, it's not cool if you say, well, you know, it's, it's okay. I can't, I can't despise anybody. But when it's our fellow, instead of despising them, we're supposed to be able to reorient that rejection into a manner of how pathetic, how awfully sad that a person could sink and stoop to such a low level. And the Alter Rebbe says, that this is known, from that which is written, meaning lifted from the scripture. This is a verse that's found in the 29th chapter of the prophecies of Yeshayo Hanavi of Isaiah, that in the 22nd verse, it says the following. The prophet Isaiah said, this is a quote, Ko Amar Hashem El Beit Yaakov. This is what God said to the house of Jacob. Now, the truth is, it doesn't say this is talking about Jacob. It says it's talking about the house of Jacob. Who is the house of Jacob? Us. It's another name for the Jewish people. So it's the house of Jacob that, so to speak, redeems Abraham. But in Tanya, and well in many Memorim, the Altar Rebbe simply says, or Jacob, who redeems Abraham. And the origin of this take on the verse, of this interpretation of the verse, which is not on its most literal level, is, is found in the Gemara in Mesechet Sanhedrin, on page 19, side B. The Gemara there brings this Pasuk, and the Gemara asks, quote, where do we see that uh, Jacob ever redeemed Abraham? And the Gemara explains how Yaakov redeems Abraham, the spirit of Abraham, so to speak. I mean, think about it. Abraham promulgates this whole righteous path. And then he has a son, Isaac. Yitzchak has a very different approach. And that could almost have led us down the road with Esau. 
<laughs> what happened to Avraham's legacy? So who redeems Avraham's legacy? Who creates a nation that serves as the progeny, the children of Avraham? Yaakov. So anyway, based on that Gemara, it's not only the metaphorical house of Jacob, the proverbial Jewish people, but it actually refers to Jacob almost individually. So the Mepharshim on this Pasuk say that the words Asher Poda Es Avraham is not referring to Jacob, but rather referring to God. The Pasuk says, Koi Omar Hashem. El Beit Yaakov, so says God to the house of Jacob, God, Asher Poda Es Avraham, God who redeemed Abraham from a fiery furnace, from an impossible combat situation, and various other circumstances in which Avraham Avinu was facing an endgame and God redeems him. So God who redeems Abraham now is speaking to his progeny to the house of Jacob. That's the literal meaning. Well, that's the way the Mepharshim explained it. But if you want to talk about it very literally, the very literal words are, Yaakov asher poda es Avram. The Metsudas David and the, and the Radak explain that it's talking about Hashem who redeemed Avram. But the, the word reads, Koi Amar Hashem el base Yaakov asher poda es Avram. To the house of Jacob or Jacob who redeemed Abraham. So what does this mean? So it means, like the Alter Rebbe says in Lukut HaTorah in numerous places, for example in Parshas Emmer, that it means that the dimension, that Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov are not simply historical figures, but that they represent dimensions of spiritual activity. They represent this idealism, this almost this spiritual reality within the Jewish people and then ultimately within each and every one of us. There's an Abraham in me and an Isaac in me and a Jacob in me. I have the power to be benevolent. I have the power to be loving. I have the power to engage, to teach, to share, to uplift. I also have the power to be disciplined. To be able to push away those who are evil and inappropriate. I have the power to be discerning. And to be appropriately judgmental of knowing what is wrong and what I should avoid. And I also have the power to be compassionate and to be merciful. And that represents, conversely, the dimensions of Avraham, of Yitzchak, and of Yaakov. Each of the patriarchs has a different pathway that they forged in Avodat Hashem. Each of the patriarchs is called Avot. Avraham Avinu. Abraham, our father, Yitzchak Avinu, Yitzchak, our father, Yaakov Avinu. And as the Alter Rebbe says in Torah Ur, that when it's said, the Gemara says, in you only call three Jews father. It means that's because Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov left or implanted a piece of themselves in every one of us. Not every one of us has a piece of Reuven or Shimon or Levi. In fact, we might belong to a particular tribe and therefore have a particular focus in Avodat Hashem. You could be part of the, the movement of Zavulun, who devotes himself to commerce and profession and wealth. Not only accumulation, but dispensing and sharing of that wealth. Or you could be from the direction, the movement of Yisachar. That your focus is on Torah study, Torah teaching. 
Both are necessary. The Jewish people have always had different elements, different strokes within the nation. But every one of us has to be Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, just as we all are the byproduct of our parents. We each have the DNA of both our parents. We each have the spiritual DNA of Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. From Avram, we get primarily our kindness, our engagement, our benevolence, our positive energy. From Yitzchak, we get our discipline, our ability to judge and be discerning. And from Yaakov, we get our innate mercy and compassion. So we all have this. Sometimes we need to use our Yaakov. And our Yaakov has to take our dimension of Avraham to mollify or mitigate our Yitzchak. Sometimes we get so carried away, so harsh, so intense, that we need an infusion of kindness. And the infusion of kindness comes via mercy or compassion. In other words, Yaakov redeems Yitzchak through Avraham. It's interesting, this is very much an, uh, almost like a, a parallel statement which is found in the Zohar and Parshas Emmer, which indicates on page Kuf that we have Yaakov who links up with Avraham in order to engineer or perfect Yitzchak and the three meld into one perfect synergy. That's literally the words of the Zohar. Yaakov is ar v'chomil Avram, mistakein begisa achara kedein achidin travayo beYitzchak. They both unite together. They coalesce and unite together, and then they're able, so to speak, to engineer Yitzchak. Damahasitra v'damahaisitra, and that doesn't allow the gevura, the intensity, to become overwhelming, because whilst discipline is necessary, you're playing with fire. It's very intense stuff. So how does that work? Why is it? So let's uh, let me share with you a little piece of Torah or here. The Alter Rebbe in Parshas Yisrei, in, in the Torah or that I mentioned earlier. So where do we see that Yaakov represents compassion? So we see, the Alter Rebbe says that Yaakov is called the Bechir Shabavot, and he is the Mechaber. He brings together both the idea of Avram and Yitzchak. Avram, he says, is chesed ro yamina. Avram in the Kabbalah stick man represents the right hand. That's why most people are righties. They have a stronger right hand. You need a stronger emphasis on benevolence and kindness. If you're a lefty, you're simply in your right mind and you need to put an emphasis on your left hand. But since most people are right-handed, we talk about right and left. But really, it could be the other way around. The point is, a weaker side and a stronger side, benevolence always has to reign supreme and be stronger. And that represents the idea of Yaakov. And then there's this idea Yaakov is, Avram is Kav HaYemin, which represents Shalomai Lamata. It's, it's an engaging. From, a, from your higher vantage point, you reach down, you engage. Then there's Yitzchak, and that represents Kav small the left. And it parries. It pushes away. It represents Mimata Lamaila. I want to get away from these things which get in my way, and I'm, I'm escaping. I'm, going, I'm, I'm extricating myself. I'm elevating myself from them. That represents the left. And Yaakov... Is called the Bechir Shabbat He's Mechaber the two. In Yaakov, in his prayer, he says, Elokei Avi Avraham, Upachad Yitzchak Hayali. My God, the God of my father, Avraham, 
So he serves Hashem like Avram does. And the pachad Yitzchak, the dread of Yitzchak Hayali, says the Rebbe Pirish Hayali, Shenimshach Lilamata. He internalized the energy of Yitzchak. How did he do that? So Yaakov, he says, comes as the power because of his absolute, utter subservience and humility to bring together both forces. It's called Kava Memutza, he says. And that's why it's able to balance the two. So on a very simple level, from a perspective of kindness, I give. I give. That's my thing. I'm, I'm the giver. I give, I dispense. From a perspective of gvura, absolutely not. <laughs> Nothing's for free. If somebody wants, they have to earn it. If they don't earn it, they don't get. Simple as that. Now, if all of us would have to live with that kind of judgment, it would be a little super harsh. So how do you, how do you, how do you live a normal life? The answer is, judgment can be draconian. So we need to sometimes mitigate the impact of judgment with, with racham, with mercy. Chesed says it doesn't matter. I don't see deficiency. I don't see shortcoming. All I see is needs, and so I give. Gvura says, I don't see anything that's worthy. To get, you have to be worthy. You don't deserve. And then we say, but could you have Rachmanus? When a person has compassion, Rachmanus, they're not viewing the person all of a sudden as being perfect and deserving. I didn't change my perspective. I'm still looking at you in a judgmental, gvura way. Well, if you're looking at the person in a judgmental, gvura, you're seeing the shortcomings, why are you giving? The person doesn't deserve. The answer is, was rachmanus, was a pity. I had compassion. So compassion is actually a blend. It utilizes elements of chesed insofar as the giving is concerned, but it's very much from a gavura vantage point. Only it mitigates the harshness of the judgment through the power of compassion. My dear friends, that represents the shofar. In fact, that's what the shofar is really all about. So what happens here is that we break up the intensity and that represents Yaakov doing his thing in mitigating the impact of Yitzchak with the kindness of Avraham, drawing forth the kindness of Avraham. This represents the idea of chesed, that there should, that we, that there should be that the essence of Hashem's desire is that our world become a holy place. And that our world, which is so dark and so depraved, our world, which is so godless, should become the locale that hosts the presence of Hashem. How? Through the performance of Torah mitzvahs. And you're able to engage, not by accepting worldliness for what it is, but seeing it in its pitiful state and choosing, therefore, to elevate it. So even though you have such a chayshech, such a hester, you have such a darkness, such a concealment, we still say, Hashem wanted this dira. He wanted His presence to be known in this reality that swallows all light, this spiritual black hole that doesn't allow for any photons. Hashem wanted His light to resonate there.
In other words, that Hashem delights in our willingness to be subservient and to engage with the world, not to reject it. That's what calls forth from God a desire to give to us. So if we would come before Hashem on Rosh Hashanah and we would reject the world, how would that bring forth blessing from Hashem? That's an escapism. But because we take that powerful yearning that we feel for God and we cry out to Him with the shofar and then we break up the sound which represents a reorientation of that intense energy not in escapist fashion, not in rejectionist fashion, but in engagement in the world. And Hashem sees that we are being subservient. We're not following our own whims. The world is an ugly place in its outer iteration. But we recognize that at its essence, it's potentially a beautiful place because it's the world that Hashem wants us to make as a dwelling place for God, God's garden. Because the sound of the shofar, the broken sounds, and as the Zohar says, both forms of broken sounds. Because of that, so this is v'zehu ikir inyan hatkiyah ba'ifin sidron. This is the order of the shofar blowing. Now, my dear friends, you understand how the Bashem to view the shofar. The shofar is the secret Morse code for the essence of the purpose of creation itself. That at once, we have to have this powerful yearning to get away from the ugliness of this world instead of being enamored by it. But at the same time, to appreciate that it's Hashem's beautiful world and we can make it beautiful. We can make it holy and spiritually exquisite if we harness and sublimate and redirect that which can only be found in the spiritual darkness and deprivation of our terrestrial existence. And that is the idea of Yaakov and Avraham who come together to parabolically sweeten Yitzchak and that historic recalibration in which we bring our Avraham, our Yitzchak, and our Yaakov, who represent the three distinct shofar sounds, and bringing it all together we are able to successfully bring forth from Hashem a beautiful new year that is filled with happiness, with plentitude, with joy and fulfillment. A year that is not only good, but a year whose goodness is as sweet as the apple and the honey we taste. May we merit to blow shofar properly. And may we merit to bring forth all of that sweet goodness. And hopefully, this all serves to trigger the sounding of the great shofar, which will represent the sweetening of everything we know as bitter in this world with the coming of Mashiach, Bimheiro, Biameno, speedily, and in our days. Thanks so much for joining today. If you found this inspirational, please like, and share. And if you haven't yet subscribed, youtube.com forward slash Rabbi Mendel Kaplan. I look forward to seeing you back. Have a beautiful day.